2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. Uh, get your Bible out and uh, flick there, 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. Um, we're actually going to be spending um, all of our time uh, in chapter 16 and 17 this evening, um, but there's a few verses from uh, chapter 15 which we need to have as a bit of context before we get to, uh, to our main passage. Last week, uh, we saw uh, David fleeing Jerusalem in sorrow uh, as his son Absalom launched his coup attempt. And we're going to pick up the story as David is uh, going up the Mount of Olives um, just uh, outside Jerusalem, uh, crying uh, because of all the uh, suffering he's experienced. Uh, but he's not alone. He's not alone. Some are with him. Some have turned against him. Um, and some of the people we met last week um, play major roles in uh, the, the chapter we're going to read this week. So there's a couple of people to look out for, uh, Ahithophel and Hushai. Uh, let's read about them. 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David sent to him, that said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Well, let's flick our eyes down to chapter 16, verse 15. Uh, this is really the reading for this week. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, who sh whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and all the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, 
Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to, to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimeaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order 
and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim. And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had sent Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and, for the, and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Well, let's ask God for his help uh, as we consider this passage of his word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you that it has something to say to us uh, here today. And so we pray that you would help us to be uh, people who are listening. Please give us ears to hear, hearts to understand and accept your word. And please give us that spiritual sight which we so desperately need to see the Lord Jesus clearly and respond to him as he deserves. In his name we pray. Amen. Christianity is on its way out. It's dying. Uh, it's a superstition that dominated uh, in the past when people were really too thick to know any better. Uh, and while it had that dominance, it sowed the seed for some of the worst oppressions and evils that are still plaguing society today. But don't worry, there's good news. There's light at the end of the tunnel because all right-thinking people are now too smart to believe in anything as silly as Christianity. We can all finally leave the dangerous teaching of the Bible behind us. Now, sure, there are some backwards and pretty nasty people out there who are, who are still clinging on to its oppressive teaching, but the church is really a, a, a tiny minority that will soon die out. Watch the news, scroll through Twitter, read a newspaper, and you'll hear that story told time and time and time again. And doesn't it make being a Christian all that much harder? Now, who would want to be part of that tiny, backwards minority, stupidly trusting in a God who doesn't even exist? Part of the problem is that when we look at the world around us, doesn't the evidence seem to back up those claims? Church attendance, in this country at least, is only going one way. Uh, the clear teaching of the Bible is extremely offensive to most of the people that we meet. And despite our best efforts, our attempts to share the gospel are so often met with a shrug at best. And as we hear this story again and again, that sneaking suspicion in the back of our mind can grow until the thought occurs to us, well, have I backed the wrong horse here? Do I really want to stand with Jesus? Is it really worth standing with him when the cost of doing so is so high? Is it worth standing with him when he says, nobody comes to the Father except through him? What about when he says uncomfortable things 
about the reality of hell. What about, well, you could insert dozens and dozens of hot topics, couldn't you? Things that would get you into an awful lot of trouble with unbelieving family members, friends, colleagues, neighbors. When the voices of Christ's enemies are so loud and so sure of themselves, does it really make sense to stand with him? If you've ever felt anything like that, or if you're staying well away from following Jesus for similar reasons to those, that this passage from 2 Samuel 16 and 17 is here to help. Why should you stand with the king? Why must you stand with the king, even when his, his kingdom is in ruins and his enemies appear unstoppable? But we're going to find out tonight in two scenes, starting with David's defeat. David's defeat. Uh, this passage begins on an ominous note for David and the people who stand with him. At 16, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Uh, last week we saw Absalom, David's son, attempt to grab the throne of Israel and do away with his father forever. Uh, we heard how he charmed the people of Israel into follow him in, following him in his rebellion, and we felt David's utter sorrow as he fled for his life along with this small band of loyal followers. And as we rejoin the story, it seems like defeat is all but certain as Absalom marches into Jerusalem, the city of David, uh, with popular support. Earlier this week, I was watching a documentary uh, about the riots at the U.S. Capitol building uh, in January 2020 as uh, the last uh, presidential election. And one of the people interviewed in this documentary uh, was a politician who was in the building while a, a violent mob stalked the corridors, many of them looking for blood, blood of people like him. He explained that despite the dangers, he spent his time uh, urging his fellow politicians not to leave the building, not to flee for safety. Why? Well, he said something like this. I've seen plenty of coups in my time. Once the capital is taken, you've already lost. And here we see David's capital has been taken. And as if Absalom's flag being raised above David's city to rapturous applause from the crowds isn't isn't bad enough already, the deck is stacked against David even further by the presence of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's inner circle, the most trusted counselor of the king. When Ahithophel spoke, David listened, not, not because he had to, because Ahithophel's wise advice had helped David to rule his kingdom well. If you look down at verse uh, 23, you'll see just how valuable Ahithophel's counsel was considered. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. And now, this political mastermind is standing at Absalom's side, working to ensure David's defeat. It doesn't take long for him to get to work. As soon as they've made themselves at home in Jerusalem, Absalom turns to his new strategist and asks us some of that wise counsel. What's our next move going to be? 
Ahithophel doesn't hesitate. He comes out straight with a plan that is as bold as it is scandalous. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all that are with you will be strengthened. It's a sordid plan. It stinks. But that's the point. By doing this outrageous thing, Absalom will be crossing a line from which there's no coming back. Not for him, not for any of his supporters. And that's just what happens. There, up on the roof of David's palace, a tent is hastily cobbled together, and Absalom carries out this despicable act. It shows us what sort of man Absalom really is. Not the champion of women's rights that he may have appeared to be a few chapters ago, but someone who was willing to go to any lengths, no matter how low, to get what he wanted. Willing to dishonor his father, willing to abuse women, willing to disobey the clear instruction of God's law, all to get the power that he craved. It was a disgusting, filthy act, but it sent a clear message to the entire nation. David is utterly powerless. David is finished. Absalom can do whatever he wants to whoever he wants because he's in charge now. David's reign is over. The only thing left to do is kill him. And that's the next step in Ahithophel's master plan. There's no time to waste. Uh, Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring the... I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. Well, it seems like a great plan. It seems like a great plan to Absalom and all the other elders of Israel. A surgical strike while David is at his weakest. And Absalom doesn't even need to get his own hands dirty. Ahithophel is willing to lead the assassination mission himself. And as we reach the end of this scene, well, there doesn't appear to be any hope at all for David or the people who are with him. Absalom and Ahithophel seem utterly unstoppable. David's defeat has been displayed for all to see. His demise, his final demise and death is just hours away. Well, imagine being a resident of Jerusalem when these grotesque scenes were being played out. You might have thought something like this. Wasn't David supposed to be God's chosen king? Didn't God promise him an everlasting kingdom? Well, it must have just been good PR on David's part. God wouldn't let something like this happen to his king, would he? The answer, according to 2 Samuel is yes, he would. In fact, God didn't just allow for this to happen to David. He meant for it to happen. Listen to these words from 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
after Nathan uh, confronts David uh, about his sin uh, with Bathsheba. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. The reality is, in the, the wicked deeds of Absalom, we see the Lord's hand acting in judgment upon David. God's plan hasn't gone awry. Things aren't spiraling out of his control. They're happening just as he said they would. We wince when we read verses and passages like this, don't we? We wonder how God could do something like this. Isn't he supposed to be holy? Isn't he supposed to be good? If he's in control of all things, how could he allow something as horrible as this to happen? Especially when it involves the terrible treatment of innocent women. And yet, the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that human beings are responsible for the most terrible sins. And the perfect and holy God is utterly in control of all of them. Ask the Bible whether God is in control of all things or whether human beings are responsible for their actions. And the Bible says, yes. Now, if your head's spinning right now and you're wondering how both those things can be true at the same time, don't worry, you're not alone. Uh, for most of the, us, and me included, this is one of the toughest questions we have about our faith. Uh, when this issue troubles me, there's always one place I go, and that's the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is the most sinful thing that has ever taken place. Torturing and executing the innocent Son of God is the lowest point human beings could ever reach. Who caused it to happen? Was it human beings? Was it God? Well, listen to the explanation of the Apostle Peter as he addressed a crowd in Jerusalem just weeks after it had taken place. These words are from Acts chapter 2. I think they're going to flash up on the screen behind me. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who caused Jesus' death? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Was it God? Yes. Peter turns to the, the humans in front of him. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Was it human beings? Yes. Now, can my brain calculate how that works? No. But if, even in the most awful suffering... And the worst sin, the sinful murder of his own son. If even then God was in control perfectly and working to achieve his plan of salvation, then I can trust him. In fact, I can put my hope in him. Whatever sin and suffering I experience or I see in the world, 
whether it's Absalom's uh, terrible uh, actions in this passage, whether it's war in Ukraine, whether it's an earthquake in Turkey. If God is in control of all things, then even in our confusion, we can put our hope in him that whatever sin or suffering we see in this world, one day we'll, we'll see. We'll see how God has used it to bring about his salvation plan, how he's used it to do good to his people. Just like we read at the start of our service this evening, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Well, David has been utterly defeated. He's utterly powerless before his enemies. But the Lord is still utterly in control. And that's where we find hope in this passage. It's where we can find the hope we need to stand with Jesus no matter what the cost. Because God hasn't deserted David. A point that is made very clear in scene two. Scene two, David's deliverance. Now the glimmers of hope in this passage start in verse five. Ahithophel, the master counselor, has just been given some uh, has just given some rock solid advice and is gearing to finish David off forever. But but hold on a minute, says Absalom. Let's let's get a second opinion. Go and grab Hushai. Let's hear what he has to say. Now, Hushai was a, another loyal member of David's inner circle, inner circle. Unlike Ahithophel, he hadn't turned traitor. He was still loyal to the king. As we read at the start, David had sent him back to Jerusalem to act as a kind of uh, sleeper agent in Jerusalem with the mission of defeating the council of Ahithophel and leaking news to David's camp. Now, Absalom knows that Hushai was close to his father. He calls him his father's friend. And yet, even when Ahithophel has spoken, Absalom bizarrely turns to his father's old friend for advice. He explains Ahithophel's plan to finish David off there and then, and he says, what do you think? Hushai knows the moment has come, and he seizes it with both hands. Imagine him there in the court. This time, this time, the counsel of Ahithophel has given is not good. And Hushai proceeds to sow as much doubt and fear as he possibly can in Absalom's mind, reminding him just what a, a capable warrior his dad, David, is. Hushai really dials it up all the way to 11 here. In Hushai's kind of words, David and his men are, they're raging around like a mother bear whose babies have been taken away from her. Even the soldier with a heart like a lion will melt like butter when coming up against them. Uh, here's what you should do instead, Absalom. Wait. Just wait. Wait to gather an army and then lead it against your father yourself. You'll be unstoppable. You'll be able to wipe David out along with his loyal followers forever. Now, Hushai has said his piece. And we all take a deep breath. Whose advice is Absalom going to take? Will it be Ahithophel? Will it be Hushai? Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, 
the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And if we're on David's side, this is the point where we start to light the fireworks. In that moment, the seeds of David's deliverance begin to sprout. And we hear the punchline of this passage in the rest of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Just like David's defeat, David's deliverance was all the Lord's work. David prayed to the Lord, didn't he? That the Lord would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And in the ears of Absalom, that's exactly what happened. Now, despite how down and out David looked, he was still the Lord's chosen king. Absalom may have won a battle, but nobody can win a war against God's Messiah. And although the, the rest of the passage, it's written, isn't it, uh, like a spy thriller, it's full of tension with the, the priest's sons hiding down a well. Um, it looks like a, a narrow escape, a close shave. But with the perspective of this verse ringing in our ears, we can read it with absolutely no tension at all. Of course Absalom's men failed to capture David's messengers. The Lord is in control, and David is his king. No matter how down and out David looks, no matter how defeated he appears, the Lord will never desert him. Why? Well, it's not because of anything about David. It's not because he deserves it. It's because the Lord always keeps his promises. And now the stage is set for an epic showdown. In the red corner, we have Absalom and his huge army. In the blue corner is David with his band of loyal supporters. And who's going to come out on top? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's obvious, at least, to Ahithophel, who sees the writing on the wall and takes matters into his own hands. The coup has failed. David's rule over Israel will never be defeated because God has ordained it. Now, that's good news for David. But it's great news for the people who have stuck with him through this apparent defeat. Standing with David, going with him as he fled Jerusalem, must have looked like a terrible decision. Siding with David meant choosing hunger, choosing thirst, choosing defeat. It looked like it meant choosing death. But it didn't. And as this passage uh, comes to a close, we see God lavishly providing not only for his king, but all those who stand with him. In chapter 17, verse 27, we have these uh, three men arrive at the camp to resupply David. And look what they've brought with them. Comfy beds, basins to wash away the dust from the journey, food to fill hungry stomachs. There's even dessert, honey, and curds. There's a cheese board, for goodness sake. Even though the final battle is yet to be fought, those who stand with God's king are not left disappointed. They'll never be abandoned. They'll never be defeated. God will always deliver his people. Looking at the world around us, standing with Jesus may look like choosing defeat. 
we're told the gospel is in retreat all over the Western world, then don't his enemies look more powerful than ever? But don't let that fool you. Don't for a second think Jesus is defeated. And when you do start to think like that, when you do find yourself more and more persuaded by this story that we're constantly told, go back in time. In your head, go back in time, because there was a moment in history where the idea that that Jesus is king of a powerful, unstoppable kingdom looked far more remote than it does even today. Go back in time and look to the cross. Look to the cross and hear the, the victorious abuse of his enemies as they shout at him, save yourself if you're really God's king. Look to the cross and see the one who had been called Christ hanging naked, bloody, and lifeless. Look to the cross and feel the despair of his disciples, those who had put all their lives on the line, all their hope in his promises of a kingdom to come. Look to the cross and see that so-called king utterly defeated. And yet, On the third day, God raised him from death to victory. A proof to all that the Lord had delivered him from defeat, even from death. A cast iron guarantee that he really is God's king. That his kingdom really is unstoppable. No matter how things look here on the ground, you can be sure that God is ordaining every single moment to bring about his plan. Plans to defeat the enemies of his Christ. Plans to bring all those who choose to stand with him home into his perfect kingdom forever. So will you stand with this king? Will you put your trust in him? Will you stand with him no matter what? If, you're, if you will, if you're standing with him, you can be sure you're choosing deliverance not defeat. Why? Because God is in control of all things and he has ordained that Jesus will have the victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth that we find in your word truth that uh, helps us to understand the world around us rightly, uh, truth which which helps us to understand your son rightly. And we pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would be at work in us. Give us the faith we need to trust you, to believe uh, what you've said to us this evening, and to stand with your King Jesus, no matter what the cost. In his name we pray.